Food Heals Nation, what have you been doing lately when it comes to truly caring for your skin? Have you tried any of the light therapy facials or the LED masks? I've shared on this show how I use lasers to completely remove my brown spots in the past, and I love anything that can help me with wrinkles or blemishes or redness or scars. I find a lot of great products on YouTube that I test out, and I've just discovered a new brand. It's called Lima, and when you see the before and afters on YouTube, you're going to be a convert too. They are changing the way that you care for your skin on actually a profoundly scientific level. This is the Lima laser. It's the world's most powerful clinic grade cosmetic laser device and the only laser FDA cleared for at home use. Why this is important is because I was spending, I'm not going to tell you how much, way too much money years ago when I was getting rid of those brown spots when I was really healing my skin. And now This same type of technology is available at home, and I'm here for it. I am so excited. So this is a near-infrared laser light that penetrates deep into the dermis, simultaneously working on your fat, muscle, and bone to give you like a non-surgical facelift. It transforms your skin. It helps skin issues like wrinkles, sagging, blemishes, pigmentation, redness, breakouts, and scars. And it does this with zero damage, zero pain, and zero downtime. And I remember the lasers that I used to do, they did have some downtime, so this is great. Make sure to check out some of the before and after photos on the website so you can see what I'm talking about. They have YouTube videos too. But the reason it's groundbreaking is it uses that near-infrared low-level light technology, which is completely cold and painless, and it's 100 times more powerful than an LED. And the craziest part is you can even use it with a full face of makeup. So check it out for yourself. Visit lima.life. L is for live. Y is for younger. M is for masterful. A is for approved, and learn more about the Lima Laser. If you're interested in trying one today, you can sign up for their newsletter. Tell them that Food Heals sent you, and please let me know if you order one. I want to hear about your results. Again, it's lima.life, L-Y-M-A dot life. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Food Heals Podcast, episode 36. And I do something with my patients called aversion therapy. Oh, okay. This is cool. So you put a steak in front of them and smack them in the face? <laughs> no, that's wrong. Sorry. No, I let them do it themselves. So, so what I have... <laughs> Holistic Voice presents the Food Heals Podcast with your hosts, Alison Melody and Susie Hardy. Join the Food Heals Nation and learn the secrets to go from feeling unwell to healing yourself. Warning, side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, an increase in sexual activity, feelings of joy, cravings for kale and quinoa, and a spike in Tinder matches. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to put in their Lululemons and take a yoga class while drinking a green juice. If you experience any of these symptoms, text your priest immediately. 
Welcome to the Food Heals Podcast. I'm Allison Melody. I'm Susie Hardy. Today's guest is Dr. Garth Davis, author of Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. But first, our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Stride Health. You've heard us rave about Stride Health before. Stride connects self-employed workers like Susie and I with affordable coverage and quality health care. It's like a concierge service for freelancers and entrepreneurs, and they take care of everything for you for free. And now that open enrollment has begun, you can change your plan today. So we set up a personal concierge for you, Food Heals Nation, at stridehealth.com slash foodheals. And so maybe you already have insurance and you're wondering, like, why should I look at Stride? Why should I switch my plan? Isn't that a headache? Well, it doesn't have to be. Assessing what you need for 2016 takes 60 seconds. Simply input your basic information and Stride will give you an answer. It only takes a minute to compare Stride's recommended plan to your current plan. And Stride will not only help you find a new plan, but it will also help you cancel your old one, all for free. The whole process should take five minutes of your life and can save you $400. That seems like a no-brainer. I know. So nothing is actually the same as it was last year on both sides of the healthcare equation. Your health insurance costs are changing and your health needs are changing. You might be a healthier person this year. You might be a sicker person. You might have had a baby. You may be having a baby next year. So reevaluating your health plan is really worth five minutes. So go to stridehealth.com slash foodheals and check it out today. Next up, our interview with Dr. Garth Davis. The Food Heals Podcast starts now. Welcome to the Food Heals Podcast. I'm Allison Melody. I'm Susie Hardy. Today's guest is Dr. Garth Davis. Dr. Davis is the medical director of the Davis Clinic at the Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas, and he starred on the hit TLC show, Big Medicine. He is the author of Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. The premise of the book is that protein is not the answer. In fact, it's the problem. In Proteinaholic, Dr. Garth Davis sets the record straight, dispelling the myths that have been perpetuated by doctors, weight loss experts, and the media. And now that he's a totally recovered Proteinaholic, Dr. Davis competes in marathons and Ironman triathlons. He lives in Houston with his family, a shy cat, and an absurdly large dog. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. We're so excited about your book. We believe in everything that you're telling everyone. So we're so glad this is out there in the world. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad it's out there because as I discovered the things I discovered in researching the book, I just wanted to shout it from a mountaintop, (laughs) shake people and say, you know, this is really the problem. And I hope that the message gets out there. Yeah, that's how we feel as well. So before we dive into the book, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, I'm a weight loss surgeon. I've been practicing weight loss surgery for 14 years in Houston. I run the medical and surgical weight loss clinic um, where I do dietary counseling as well as surgery. And we've got one of the largest weight loss clinics uh, in the country. It's a very busy clinic. And from Houston, I did my training in Michigan. I at, at one point, you know, I was, it's weird, you know, you go through medical school and you don't learn anything about nutrition. Right. I talk about this a lot in the book, but I got through medical school, not just not understanding or knowing about nutrition, but not really thinking that what we eat had anything to do with disease. 
it was just no concept of like your podcast name, Food Heals. Mm -hmm. Food was kind of unrelated. I mean, if you think about the way Western medicine is set up, it you know it's all subspecialized. So you've got your heart doctor, and you've got your kidney doctor, and you've got your lung doctor, and they they each are looking at you. They're just looking at the system. Like you go and see your lung doctor, he's just concentrated on your lungs. Right. So they're missing this whole package, this whole put together human being, and all the things that can affect it. And so that's how I kind of you know was thrust down into the uh, doctor world as this guy who thought everything was about disease, that the human body was inherently broken. And my job was to fix it with medicine and with my knife. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then it was interesting to get into weight loss surgery because, you know, you get into it, it's still a surgical specialty. And, and so it's, you still feel like a surgeon, but it, it, you get a little bit of a closer relationship with the patients and you get a better idea of the extent of the problem that's out there. Um, you know, you see all these patients with hypertension, heart disease, and you start asking them, what are they eating? And you start to get these certain meal patterns. Right. And at the time I was a really big advocate on protein. I just said, eat as much protein as you can. Protein's everything, protein, protein, protein. You're a proteinaholic, right? <laughs> proteinaholic. And that's all I thought about in my day. I was like, okay, I gotta have eggs for breakfast. I'm going to have uh, you know, a chicken breast for lunch. I'll have a protein bar for a snack. Right. And, you know, a steak at dinner. And the thing is, is uh, over time I was getting, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. Like my stomach was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And my, I then went to get tested for a life insurance policy and I actually failed the life insurance policy test. Oh, wow. no. Because my cholesterol was too high and my liver function tests were elevated and I also had hypertension. Wow. And meanwhile, I'd also been having irritable bowel syndrome and all kinds of problems. I was seeing doctors. I was like, here I am, 35 years old, you know, having to take medicines and seeing doctors. And this just can't be right. So I decided to kind of jump outside the box for a second and, and really look into how are people eating? What are we eating? What does the rest of the world eat? How did we evolve to eat? I really looked at, you know, popular diets and how they work and what's the research behind them. And then I really delved into the actual research, nutritional science, and what I found just shocked me. I was just floored by the fact that really a lot of the things that we think are healthy for us are not. And this notion that, that we need to get more protein is completely flawed and maybe a large part of the reason that we're so sick. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because... I also came to this uh, conclusion years ago, and not as a doctor, but in my own research, as just a person trying to figure out what the answer was after both of my parents dying of cancer and the doctor telling me nutrition does not matter, and me realizing that that wasn't true. It was true for him because that's all he knew, but I didn't believe that was true. And so first I became pescatarian and then vegetarian. And for 10 years, the question was always, where do you get your protein? Where do you get your protein? And I would say to them, who's the last person that you knew that died of a protein deficiency? And that would usually shut them up pretty quick. <laughs> and then I read it in your book and I was like, jumping up and down. I was like, a doctor backs up what I have been saying for 10 years. So I was so happy to read that in your book. I was thrilled. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it's crazy. We, there, there, no one has a protein deficiency. I've never seen it. And, you know, the odd thing is that you look at the NHANES data and everybody, I mean, we have 100% of people pretty much meet the RDA requirement for protein. And keep in mind that the RDA requirement for protein is the optimal level, not 
not the minimal level. And so they say for men, it's 56 grams of protein. For women, it's 46 grams of protein. And that should satisfy 98% of the population. Well, our average protein intake is in the 80s to 90s to 100s, depending on who you read. Mm -hmm. So everyone's getting enough protein. But meanwhile, only 3% of the country is eating enough fiber. Right. And the RDA recommendations for fiber are kind of low, in my opinion. And still, we're not getting that amount. And so it's just crazy to me that everyone, if I talk about it in the, in the book, but people are constantly looking. There's been all these studies. People are constantly looking for protein. Doctors are telling people to eat protein. The media is telling people to eat protein. But here they are not getting enough fiber. And we know that not getting enough fiber leads to a lot of different diseases. And fiber is what, tell me if I'm correct, is helps you digest and binds to everything to get it out of you. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, well, it does. It has multiple um, functions, but it, it certainly can bind toxins. It binds cholesterol and gets that out of your system so that your liver has to create more cholesterol so that your cholesterol levels don't go up. And it actually you know, fosters a good bacterial environment in your colon so that you have a good microbiome, which has been associated with a lot of the uh, alleviation of a lot of different disease processes. And is it only so, found um, in, sorry to interrupt, is it only found in plants? Only is that correct? Plants. That's correct. Th okay, there no, we go. No that's what I products with fiber. In right, that's what I thought. You know what? Can you say that again? There's no animal products with fiber in it. I did not know that. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. There's not a single animal product that has fiber in it. So you got to eat your veggies. I mean, if you didn't have a reason before, that seems like reason number one, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's no question. It, look, it's, it's always going to be a combination of things. Everybody tries to distill it into one little thing. Everybody wants to say this is the problem or that's the problem. It, it turns out you can, you know, say that meat is bad for you and say that, you know, sugar is bad for you. It doesn't have to be one or the other. There's a lot of things in the world that are bad for us. But one thing that we know is good for us is fruits and vegetables and beans and potatoes and nuts and seeds. And if you're eating those kind of things and whole grains, you're eating a healthy diet and you can leave the other stuff alone. And is the fiber actually from like the cell walls of, of plant? Uh, Correct. It's, okay. it's called what's called cellulose. It's a non-digest. We can't digest it. Right. Our, the bacteria in our bowels can in our colon, but um, we can't digest this. And uh, the, the other great thing about fiber, there was a lady named Barbara Rolls, a PhD, who wrote a book called Volumetrics and did a lot of great science. But fiber fills you up really well. Uh, and so it, it, people that eat more fiber tend to lose weight better. And the other great thing about fiber is it slows sugar absorption. So you don't have these sugar highs and sugar lows. So uh, fiber is a really important part of a healthy diet. And it kind of sweeps the intestines clean. It does. I remember reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to eat sugar, I should eat it with fiber. Is that what you're saying? Is that permission <laughs> Permission to eat sugar? You should eat sugar with fiber. But I mean, take for instance, you know, an apple or a strawberry or, you know, the, there's sugars in these fruits, but, and yet people don't get sick from them. If anything, they do well from them. That's because it's combined with fiber and they get a nice slow release of the sugar into their body. That's what I always thought. You know, people always say, oh, sugar is sugar. and But I never knew any people that got really sick from just eating fruit. It was always from cake and pudding and ice cream. It wasn't – I've never met someone that just ate fruit and got diabetes. Right? Yeah. Oh, no. Di look, they did a, a really good study. They looked at thousands and thousands of people in what's called the Epic Panacea Study. And I talk a, a lot about this in the book. And they looked at causes of diabetes. And actually, the more sugar you ate, the less diabetes you had. Sugar and diabetes – this, having a high sugar, which is a sign of diabetes, 
is simply that. It's just a symptom. It's not the root problem. The root mm -hmm. problem is actually fat inside your muscle cells, making your muscles not be able to make insulin receptors so that you become insulin resistant. The problem is not eating sugar. It's eating fat and animal protein. Where did this obsession with protein come from? Do you know? Yeah, I go into this quite a bit in the book, the history of the protein and how it got there and how it got, got, and got raised. And there's a lot of different stories. I mean, when they first discovered protein, they discovered it because it was part of all of our cells. So that's the protein. The root is proteus from, from Latin meaning important. And they found that protein was everywhere in our cells. And so therefore, it must be extremely important. So we need to eat a lot of protein. And then there was a, a guy, uh, Carl von Wright, a doctor who, um, this was about the turn of the century, or the late 1800s, and he looked at construction workers and he noticed that they ate about 115 grams of protein a day. So he said, well, if they eat 115 grams of protein a day, that's what we should eat. Of course, that's not a very good scientific study. Who knows if they were healthy or why they were eating that. But that's what it became for a while. And there were a lot of doctors came out and said that shouldn't be the case, but that's what it stood for a while. Then what happened is, you know, we went through times where, you know, our, our ancestors didn't really get to eat a lot. They were much more concerned about infections than they were about overnutrition. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we really started seeing obesity and heart disease start to run rampant. And I really think one of the big reasons that, that got protein to its current state of kingdom <laughs> came from the Senate Select Committee on nutrition, which you may have heard of in the 70s, where McGovern chaired this committee, and they wanted to look at what was making America have heart disease and gain weight. Okay. And they got all these different experts, and they concluded that they had several conclusions, and one of their conclusions was America needs to eat less meat. Mm -hmm. Well, the meat industry, as you could imagine, it was eat less meat, eggs, and dairy. And you could imagine the meat, eggs, and dairy industry were infuriated. They had McGovern voted out. Mm -hmm. They got the committee disbanded. Uh, and the recommendations were either eliminated or watered down. Now, the watered down version kind of came out that we should eat less fat. Okay. Instead of saying less, eat less meat. In fact, the actual recommendation came back, eat more lean meat. Mm -hmm. So it actually came out to eat more meat, which is ridiculous. So... Then we started on this low-fat craze. So it was like, eat less fat. So all we need to do is eat less fat. The problem is no one ate less fat. We <laughs> ate less fat. But we started eating snack wells, low-fat cookies, and uh, Coke Zero because it had no fat in it, and you know all this kind of stuff that really wasn't healthy for us at all. Yeah, I grew up with all these things. I remember being told, just eat lean meat, don't eat fried meat, don't eat certain kinds of meat, just make sure it's lean. And then I grew up on the snack wells and the fat-free, everything was fat-free, fat fat-free that. It was such a craze. But I grew up thinking like, oh my God, fat is the enemy. And that was ingrained in me from a kid. And it's still kind of ingrained in me, but I ha I'm trying to let it go, you know, because- No, there's... don't let it go. Fat's not good for you. <laughs> but there are certain healthy fats. For there instance, it, avocado, avocado, healthy fats, or fish oils, healthier <laughs> fats, right? Saturated fats are fine, but the, the saturated fat is, is a true and real problem. Okay. Um, but, but so, you know, the, the problem was that they started this low-fat craze, and that didn't make anybody healthy. So then came the low-carb craze because they noticed everyone's eating, you know, cookies and this, that, and the other. Right. 
low fat. So then you had the low carb phase. Then you had the series of low fat versus low carb studies. And these studies are just ridiculously bad. They basically make a straw man low fat because they say, well, here's a low fat diet and it's 30% fat, which isn't low fat at all. Okay. <laughs> they compare it to a low carb diet and there's all these back and forth about which diet is better. So people are arguing between fat and carbs all the time. And in the background, there's protein and no one's arguing about protein. And so protein just kind of slowly gets lifted and vaulted into this state of, you know, maybe fat's bad for us, maybe um, carbs are bad for us, but definitely not protein. And so now we have this kind of protein as this legion thing. The other thing is there's a huge and humongous industry behind protein. Eggs, dairy, and meat are very, very powerful industries. And uh, that's what kind of vaulted protein to its current levels. Yeah, and they have so much power. Um, you know, I just saw the documentary Cowspiracy, and they talk a lot about the power that these industries have. And it's also in um, Plant Pure Nation. They talk a little bit about that. But your book came out, and now the WHO, World Health Organization, just finally, to our complete surprise, came out with a study saying processed meat causes cancer, which people like us have known forever. But I was floored that this was allowed to get out. I was excited. But what do you think about that? What's your opinion? What is Are things changing now? Yeah, I think things are definitely changing. I mean, the, the, there's more and more studies uh, that are coming out on a regular basis. And it's becoming just completely obvious. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to deny. And so the World Health Organization, the great thing about it is there's not a lot of industry ties to it. Uh, it's not like, uh, you know, the USDA said that the, the USDA had a panel to advise them, an experts panel, as to what their recommendations should be. And they actually recommended that the USDA say eat less meat. But the USDA has so much influence Mm. uh, put upon them by the industries that they just couldn't do it. Uh, But the World Health Organization is a little free of that. They looked at a lot of different science. They looked at a lot of the science that came from the American Institute of Cancer Research, who combined with the World Health Organization and the World Cancer Research Fund. And the studies they looked at were just so damning of me that it was just almost impossible for them to not say. In fact, if you look at the studies, the studies really downplay the amount that meat affects cancer. Because one of the... I'm sorry, I got a big dog. Stella. (laughs) (laughs) We have dogs in our studio too. We're dog friendly. If anyone's listening, if you hear the dogs, we apologize, but we're not letting them out. We're going to let them be in with (laughs) us. And so is Garth. So got a great name. He likes to flap his ear. Oh, (laughs) that is a a big dog. It's a big, big dog. That's almost a horse. (laughs) Yeah, definitely horse-like. But anyway, before the ear slapping, what was I saying? Uh, WHO protein downplaying oh, yeah. protein. Yeah, and they're they're da- like the the studies are actually downplay the association because uh, you got to understand in these studies, like if you're going to do a large epidemiologic study, what you have to do is basically the researchers try to prove what you call it proving the null hypothesis. In other words, you want to prove that there's not an association, and if you can't prove that, then there's definitely an association. So. They, they do a lot of things. It's, they do what's called a multivariate analysis. So they control for different variables that they think can affect it. So, for instance, one thing that we know for sure can lead to cancer is being overweight. Mm-hmm. We also know that plant-based diets are really, really good for keeping you from being overweight and that meat is associated with obesity. Right. But when they looked at these cancer studies, they controlled 
for weight. So that's taking out one variable by which meat causes cancers by making you overweight. So now they're selecting people that eat meat but have been able to maintain leanness. So you're already getting like a genetically preferred uh, study. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Then on top of that, they controlled for amount of vegetables eaten. So what, like one study that they looked at was the, called the Epic Oxford study. And th- there was a definite, like red meat was definitely associated with cancer in it. But what they noticed that was some of the red meat eaters didn't eat any vegetables. So they controlled for that. They said, if you didn't eat any vegetables, you're basically not in the study. So they looked at people that ate meat, but also ate a lot of vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then the correlation with meat dropped off a bit. Um, and so that that's further kind of, what we call over adjusting to kind of eliminate the correlation. And in these really large studies that are long-term studies with thousands upon thousands of people, let me tell you, when there's a correlation, if with all the statistical analysis they do, if there's a correlation, you better believe that where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. So yeah, I I really think the world health organization has done a really good thing. And I think we're going to see more and more of this. You're going to see that, you know, already the American college of cardiology is coming out against meat and their current president's vegan. Uh, You're going to see it coming from the American cancer society. Just the, the data is in, you know, in my book and I have a section on weight, I've got a section on cancer, a section on the heart, and I've got just tons. My bibliography, I think is like 800 references. That's all. (laughs) <laughs> only 800 oh, yeah <laughs> i'm kidding yeah, i'm kidding is, that's a lot it's a lot and the the science is just so damning of meat that it, it's strange to me that you know the, all the, the response has been really interesting too. this idea that uh, uh you know everything in moderation it, it you know that's ridiculous it's like do you eat do you smoke in moderation right uh, and what our idea of moderation i mean you know the um, the WHO said that moderation, I think they said it was like 50 grams a day. It was like basically like a piece of sliced turkey a day is what they consider moderation. But no one does that. We we have, you know, meat at just about every meal. There's uh, when you get, you know, when you have sliced turkey, it's on a Subway sandwich and there's like, you know, 10 slices. Yeah. Um, and and people are eating bacon like crazy. There's no moderation in our country. And we were, the WHO is just looking at cancer, but I mean, meat is tied in with heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, ulcerative colitis. I mean, there's so many different things that I just don't know why our medical establishment uh, isn't moving faster to try to get people to start eating less meat. Garth, you know, I feel like you come from such a very specific pool of people. You know, you're an MD, you worked with um, weight loss surgery, that that is what you do, and and yet admitting here you had very little education on nutrition. I think you come from a very important point, and I'm so glad you wrote this book because so often we have heard, you know, oh, you know, from MDs, I have, uh, I know Allison has, that what you eat does not matter. And the fact that that meat is linked to diabetes is blowing my mind right now. I'm still trying to get over that one because forever I've heard sugar, 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 not oh, protein. No, strong, strong correlation between meat and diabetes. And there's, there, I, I could explain the pathophysiology, but it definitely exists. Yeah. No, I believe you. My mother-in-law has diabetes. My grandmother had diabetes, um, all developed later in life. And they're always told about fat and sugar. They're never told, they were never told about protein. And here they are using their Splenda and they're, they're still eating sugar and fake sugar, but they never even considered protein. 
meat, meat, yeah. meat uh, you know, animal protein specifically. Yeah, animal protein. And, and there's, you know, several mechanisms by which animal protein does this. One of them is that um, animal protein has in it heme iron, especially red meat. Heme iron is very toxic. In heme iron, you know, everybody's like, oh, I eat my meat because it's got iron in it. That kind of iron is horrible. It's associated with aging. It damages cells. It oxidizes fat. And one thing we know it do is, no, we know that it does is it, uh, it really affects the beta cells that secrete insulin in the pancreas. And, you know, it's funny, just to show you how out of touch, like, the research world is with this. I went to a meeting recently where they were discussing diabetes and how diabetes exists. And this researcher had a great research showing that heme iron is a very strong cause of diabetes. And then at the end, people were allowed to ask questions. And someone asked this researcher, well, what do you eat? Right. Which was totally kind of took the researcher off guard because, you know, she was up there to discuss the, the intricacies of her lab studies and all her studies were done in labs and stuff like that. And she said, well, I eat a low carb diet. Now, you got to understand how ridiculous that is because if she's eating a low-carb diet, that could tell you right away she eats a lot of meat. So she's basically eating heme iron. Mm. She just told us we shouldn't be eating. And that's <laughs> kind of like she, she just doesn't see the forest for the trees. Um, the um, other th way that meat causes diabetes is that certain amino acids cause fat that you eat. And, you know, again, these animal proteins always come with fat, right? Um causes the fat that you eat with the animal protein to enter into muscle cells. When the fat gets into the muscle cells, it interferes with the muscle cells' ability to make insulin receptors. So if you can't make insulin receptors, your body can't put the sugar into the cell where it can be used for energy. And so the sugar starts to build up, and that's how you start to get diabetes. Wow. So in terms of, let's say a, pay, a person has diabetes, what are some steps that they can take to reverse it? Is it just giving up meat? Is there other things? What do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I would, it, first of all, it depends on how long they've been diabetic. And again, we're talking about type 2 diabetes here. Um, but what I, I basically tell people to do is do a plant-based diet, really cut out or greatly minimize meats and eat a lot more fruits and vegetables and fiber. And there was a really good study done by Dr. Neil Barnard. Yes. Where he took a group of diabetics and gave half of them the ADA diet, which is the typical diet, which is a fairly low-carb diet that they give people for diabetes. And the other group, they did a vegan diet, which included things you would never think to tell a diabetic to eat, such as cantaloupe and pasta and things like that. Mm -hmm. The vegan group did, I think, 40% better with their A1C, which is a measure of their uh, sugar uh, levels. Uh, they dropped their sugars far better than the uh, ADA diet. Okay, that's such good information. Thank you for sharing that. We'll post, um, Dr. Neil Barnard is a great resource as well. I follow him. His studies and the things that he does are amazing. So I want to go back to where you were when you were getting tested and you wanted to get the life insurance and you were denied for life insurance. And then obviously you discovered all the things that you're telling us. So what were your next steps and how did you get to where you are today? And I'm sure you have life insurance now. So tell us that story and how you did that. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, first it was, you know, I went through this kind of shock, like, oh my God, how could this be? Let me start researching. And and, and what I really started to to do, like in the beginning, my research kind of looked at what because I kind of thought America was the healthiest, greatest place in the world. Like at the time, I just thought our healthcare system is the best. When was this? 
this was right after I kind of like, uh, well, I've always thought our healthcare system was the best, but right after I found out that I had high cholesterol and hypertension, I really started looking into it. Okay. And what I found is that I had been wrong, that really we have some of the worst life expectancy, the highest diabetes rates, the highest obesity rates. And this really, either I didn't know it or I just didn't pay attention to it in the past. But now I was paying attention to it. And so my thought was, if we're the worst, what's the best? Where are the countries that are healthy and what are they doing? And so I started looking at healthy countries and how they eat. And I was shocked at how high their vegetable and fruit content and how low their meat content. I mean, meat, which I thought was good for you, is just not a part of like the blue zone diets the, right. the, on the, the longer lived populations. And I also started looking at the history of dieting and different diets that have worked in the past and was shocked that like some of the best diets that are out there, Pritikin um, was a vegetarian vegan diet that just had unbelievable results. Dean Ornish's studies where he actually reversed heart disease with plant-based diet. Yeah. And I mean, I was really fascinated by Walter Kempner. I don't know if you know who he is, but he did the rice diet at Duke. I'm from North Carolina. I have a lot of friends that went to Duke. <laughs> oh, really? So the, they, they could tell you about the history of the rice diet. It was fascinating. You put people on rice and fruit, and there's been no studies of any other diet that has been more successful than just, just rice and fruit. If you just ate rice and fruit, it drops blood pressure like you can't believe. Remember back then they didn't have the treatments for blood pressure we have now, and this diet really saved people's lives. Wow. Helped with kidneys tremendously, helped with diabetes tremendously. And so this really started making me think, do I have this all wrong? And then I really started studying the physiology of the body more and looking at long-term epidemiologic studies from around the world. Now, how did I personally change is, is kind of a different story because, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot with my patients. You can't go on a diet. Diets don't work. You can't be like, I'm, I, there, I knew it wasn't going to work because I'd seen this a million times with my patients. If I said to myself, I don't want to eat a steak because I'm on a diet. I still love steak, but I, I'm not going to eat it. Or if I say something like, okay, I'm going to be in moderation. I love steak, so I'm going to eat it from time to time. Or maybe I'll have a cheat day. My problem with cheat days is then, you know, all week I'm like, I can't wait for the cheat day for me to eat the cheat, the cheeseburger or the, the steak. And so then I vaulted the steak and the cheeseburger into this like unbelievably great thing that my body can't wait to get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I had to completely change that view. And, and I changed it. Interestingly, the, the, the studies helped a lot. The more I researched, the more I was clear that this meat was making me sick. And the more I changed my diet, the less sick I felt, the better my cholesterol, the better my high blood pressure. And that was like positive feedback, like almost like a biofeedback. So that I said, gosh, I started to almost value my body more. Yeah. My body's the temple of my soul. How could I pollute it with this meat? And I read, you know, books like Eating Animals and looked at the videos of how animal agriculture works and started studying how animal agriculture affects the environment. And all these things made me absolutely disgusted with meat, like to the point where I, it's not that I wasn't eating it because I was on a diet. I wasn't eating it because I didn't want it. Right. On the flip side, you know, I really concentrated on looking at, you know, these cookbooks with like really beautiful dishes of fruits and vegetables really colorful. And the more I started eating like this, I was like, wow, the, you know, my old hamburger or, you know, uh, steak. I mean, it was so bland looking and so uncolorful and just looked dead. Now I'm eating, you know, these large plates of grilled vegetables and fruits and, and salads. And 
uh, oatmeal with berries and it's so colorful. It tastes good and my body feels great on it. And I started exercising. I started becoming more athletic and it made me, you know, I, I, my body just started saying, I want this. It makes me feel good. And so, you know, slowly but surely my diet completely morphed. And what's even more interesting to me as well is that you're from Texas, right? Or you live in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. yeah in Houston. Houston. So you're in you're in state country. I mean, I worked in a I worked in a steakhouse in New York City that came from Houston and Dallas and run by Texans and they love their meat. They love their meat. And I see lots of ranchers in my office for weight loss. They come in with their big old bellies. <laughs> and their belt buckles, I'm sure. You can imagine when I told them, you know, you gotta cut back on the meat. And how do they respond to that? You know, by the time they get to me, they kind of know it. Some of them, it comes to, as a shock, but uh, a lot of them do really well uh, on cutting back their meat. It's it's actually quite impressive. Really? They don't balk at it? I know. Oh, I certainly have many balk, but most of them, and I don't say you have to be a vegan or you have to be a vegetarian. We talk about, you know, just changing the way the plate looks. I mean, if you look at the American plate, it's absolutely dominated by processed food and animal products. Right. Only about 5 to 8% of the calories we eat are from fruits and vegetables. But if you look at the plate of an Okinawan or a Sardinian or someone from the Nicoyan Peninsula or Seventh-day of Venice, these different blue zones, their plates are loaded with fruits and vegetables. And so my big statement with the patients is to really make fruits and vegetables the star of the show and use the meat as a side dish for a condiment. I heard that um, not too long ago, actually in relation to, to Russian cuisine. I don't remember where it was from, but they used the statement using meat as a condiment. And I thought that is a terrific way of thinking of it if you are going to continue to eat meat, just a little bit of it and high quality and and not you know, processed. organic, organic, and not processed, and not it. It just changed. It flipped a switch in me. I was like, okay, if you're gonna do that, if you're gonna continue to do that, yes, dominate the plate with fruits and veggies and rice, or and you meat know, is your ketchup and whole right? grains, <laughs> and yeah, and meat as a condiment. I love that. And it, and it works for a lot of my patients. I mean, when I talk to my patients, whether I've done surgery on them or I'm just treating them for um, just going over diets with them. They all, I mean, the one thing they could say after we worked for a while is that they're eating a lot more fruits and vegetables and a lot less meat and dairy. And that's all I can ask for. Absolutely. And I've heard you mention the blue zones a number of times. Can you just go over that for our listeners who may not be familiar? Yeah, sure. Dan, there's a guy named Dan Butner who works with National Geographic mm-hmm. and he did, it was kind of a study, um, more, not really a scientific study, but went and visited uh, different places that had been labeled as blue zones, meaning that they had the most centenarians, most people living over a hundred yes. uh, per capita. And they located uh, five places that had just remarkable longevity. And that was Okinawa, Sardinia, the Nicoyan Peninsula of Costa Rica, and the Seventh-day Adventists. Mm-hmm. And he, he, they try to look at what these all these cultures had in common. And there's many things. You know, it wasn't just the food. They value their elderly. The elderly um, are still the, uh, you know, they're not in nursing homes. They're still participants and have very active social schedules. They walk a lot. But the one thing that really struck me was just how 
vegetable and fruit centered, all these different diets were, even though they could be completely different. Like the Okinawa, every diet is loaded with beans for and legumes, for instance. So in Okinawa, it's soy. In Sardinia, it was cannellini and fava beans. In the Korean Peninsula, it was black beans. You know, no matter what you look at, there was legumes. There was lots of vegetables. There's lots of fruits. They're very high carb diets. All of these are very high carbohydrate diets. Um, and look dramatically different to the standard American diet. Absolutely. Thank you so much for clarifying that. A lot of people come on this podcast and talk about Blue Zone, so I think we should do a full episode about it, right, Susie? I absolutely think we should. But yeah, I really appreciate you letting us know more about it. He's a fascinating guy, so you should get Dan and have him on. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. And um, there's one more thing that you talk about in your book that I think is really important because I think a lot of people don't understand what this is, and it's inflammation. And it's my understanding that inflammation is one of the main causes of disease, and there's many foods that cause inflammation. So eating an anti-inflammatory diet can really reduce your risk or reduce current symptoms. So what do you think about inflammation? And tell us about what causes that, what provokes that. Yeah, inflammation is huge. And and the funny thing is that people have anti-inflammatory diets all like you see anti-inflammatory diets and it's got chicken and meat and milk and stuff in it and that's like those are all completely inflammatory yeah especially dairy that's one of the most inflammation causing things you can eat right yeah they did a great study where they fed people either water sugar water or cream Uh uh-huh and with water and sugar water there was no changes in inflammatory mediators you didn't see these high inflammatory mediators but what you did with the cream you saw a huge jump in the inflammatory mediators and what we know is that when people eat meat and dairy and things like that there are bacteria that have been in those meat and dairy and stuff now you can kill the bacteria by pasteurizing and and heating and cooking. But what you don't kill is one of the toxins that are in the bacteria called endotoxin. Mm. So when you eat the meat and you eat the dairy, the endotoxins get into the blood and your body will react to that and create an inflammatory response. The other thing that we found is that meat has a certain antigen, a certain carbohydrate on the cells of, of animals called new 5 gc Mm-hmm. And when we ingest that, we start to express new 5GC. And we're not supposed to. And when we do, it creates an inflammatory response. And there's even been some studies showing that that inflammatory response could even um, result in cancer. Mm-hmm. And then finally, acidosis leads to inflammation. And eating foods that are high in amino acids, especially amino acids that contain sulfur, that can lead to uh, acidosis, which in turn leads to inflammation. So there was like one study that the, you know, the high, the low carb, high protein group, they're always looking for their studies that support what they say. And there was a study that was trying to show that low carb had the best weight loss. Now it turned out they didn't have the best weight loss, but it did lower the metabolism the least. So their argument was, look at this great study, our low carb, high protein people lower the metabolism at least so they're less likely to gain weight. Well, that turns out not to be true if you look at it. Low carbers do gain weight over time. But what was interesting is they totally swept under the carpet the fact that the low carbers had very high levels of C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory mediator, and they had cortisol in their urine, which is a stress response. Mm-hmm. And so their low-carb people were under inflammation and stress, which we know leads to disease. 
Wow. I mean, this is just blowing up all of, of the things that people are believing, especially in the past. But thank you for sharing all this information. This is so important. I'm so excited about your book. We will be right back with Dr. Garth Davis's tips from his book, Proteinaholic, and what you can do to start getting healthier today. Today's show is sponsored by Stride Health. Stride Health is built just for self-employed adventurers like us, and probably like you. Everything you need for health coverage and health care, they have it. To get your personal concierge at no cost to you, go to stridehealth.com slash foodheals. Stride's customer care team is fundamentally different from calling your insurance company. Your insurance company is always going to be the gatekeeper, but Stride's job as your advocate is to kick the gates open for you. Their employees are healthcare consumers just like you. They solve their own problems, which are also your problems. It's those crucial moments when the shit hits the fan and you're in your most vulnerable state that you need a health advocate. That is what Stride provides. For example, Stride had an engineer who had a respiratory issue and they were able to find him the best doctor in San Francisco to treat him while he was in the hospital. Whether you have health insurance or not, Stride will take care of all the sweat and headaches of figuring out where to get care and how much you'll pay. They even pick your pharmacy and doctors for you. Think of it like this. Health insurance companies have hundreds of mathematicians trying to figure out how risky their new customers might be. There's never been an actuary for you, though. So they're flipping the whole thing on its head, doing the math on your potential risk for the year, and getting you the best care options. So take a minute and join now at stridehealth.com slash foodheals. Turn Stride on for you and your family. You'll get access to their on-call care team who has your back when you need it most. Joining Stride is free. It takes two minutes and it's built just for you. Check it out at stridehealth.com slash foodheals. You're listening to the Food Heals Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. All right, Food Heals Nation, we're back with Dr. Garth Davis, who is author of Proteinaholic, the book we've been talking about today. He is also author of The Expert's Guide to Weight Loss Surgery. Dr. Davis has been named a Texas Monthly Super Doc several times, most recently in 2015. Dr. Davis is a recognized expert in initial bariatric procedures as well as revisional bariatric surgery and frequently lectures on the importance of a plant-based diet. And he is dedicated to helping people discover the foods and adopt the behaviors that can lead to a healthy and happy life. And that's what Susie and I are all about. That's right. (laughs) So we're so glad to have Dr. Davis here. So Garth, tell us some of your top tips from your book. How can people get started on the healthy path today? Well, you know, I think the first thing to do is we got to start changing our tastes. It's like I told you, you could say, oh, okay, I've listened to Dr. Davis. I think that, you know, Steak is probably bad for me, so I love it, but I'm going to go on a diet. That won't work. So you've got to change your taste. So one thing, there was a great study recently that looked at behavioral therapy and how taste can actually change. And I do something with my patients called aversion therapy. Oh, okay. This is cool. So you put a steak in front of them and smack them in the face? (laughs) No, that's wrong. Sorry. No, I let them do it themselves. So so what I have to do (laughs) is take a picture of yourself that you do not like. And, you know, with my patients, a lot of them are on a lot of medications. So I say, take a picture of yourself. You don't like holding your medications. I mean, get a visceral response to this. 
So like when you wake up in the morning, your hair is greasy, you have no makeup on, you're just like, ugh. Sure, sure, sure. And then take and then do a collage and surround that picture with pictures of these foods you typically eat. Pizzas and uh, hamburgers and steaks. So these foods that we've kind of trained ourselves to be, I don't know, attracted to, uh, where, you know, you might, you know, you eat cheeseburgers every time you're stressed. So cheeseburgers like a soothing thing for you. Now I want you to put that collage up so that every day you see this cheeseburger and you see this picture of yourself you don't like. And so consciously and subconsciously, you start to get this idea that the cheeseburger is not associated with comfort, but rather with this ill feeling you have when you look at this picture of yourself that you want to change. Mm -hmm. And the studies have shown that over time, this could completely, I mean, the studies are fascinating. They, they took a group of people that were overweight and they showed them pictures of a cheeseburger and their brain lit up like crazy. They wanted the cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. Then they did basically what we're talking about, where they changed their, um, they did this behavioral therapy. Then later on, they showed them pictures of the cheeseburger and their brains didn't light up at all. Their taste had completely changed. Now, on the flip side, what I want patients to do and people to do is to um, take a picture of what your goals are, like a picture that just kind of speaks to you like, this is my goal. Uh huh. And do a collage filled with beautiful fruits and vegetables, like all the stuff that's on your uh, icon for the Food Heals podcast, those beautiful fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yes. You know, surround your, your goal picture with those pictures and look at that every day. So that all of a sudden your, your body starts associating these foods with your goals and with feeling better and with feeling healthy. Yeah. And you, you, they did this in the behavioral therapy study, the way people, they showed them salads, no reaction in their brain. Mm -hmm. Then they did this kind of uh, behavioral therapy with them. And then later on, they showed them a salad and their brains lit up like, we want that salad. And so you really can change your behavior by doing something like this. The mind is so powerful, right? Very powerful. And we don't give enough credit to that. It's like you are in control of your mind when you're stressed out, when you're deciding what to do all the time you have control over it. And a lot of times we feel like we don't have control. We don't have control over what we, we're just craving it. Or we don't have control over how we feel about that situation. We just, it's just happening to us. But that's not correct, right? Well, there's learned patterns. So um, there are a lot of things controlling the way we eat. Um, there's hormones called ghrelin that controls hunger. Some people have more of it, which is why some people are way more than other people. What is ghrelin? Tell me that. Tell me about that. Well, that's secreted by the stomach that increases hunger. And we know that cutting ghrelin down with surgery makes people less hungry. There's other hormones that control hunger, polypeptide Y. There's a lot of different fancy names out there that control hunger. But I mean, there's definitely a genetic component to obesity. Some people are hungrier than others. There's a lot to be said about marketing of food and how that affects our taste. And then there's just habits. I mean, you know, if you, like I said, if you've been eating cheeseburgers all your life, life, it's become a comfort to you. And so you will always turn to that. So we do have power of our brain, but it, you have to reprogram it. And that's what I'm talking about is reprogramming the brain. Absolutely. And I love what you said. It's kind of like a lot of um, yogis and, you know, empowerment people tell you to make a vision board of all the things you want to see in your life. So it's like the job you want, the person you want to marry, you know, whatever it is. And this is similar to that. It's like making that negative connotation. With it's like the, the anti-vision board. <laughs> making the negative connotation with the food and the positive connotation with how you want to be. So it's so powerful. So I really appreciate that you, you telling us that. 
And then the other step I have my patients do is journal. It's so important that, you know, we eat so subconsciously a little bit here, a little bit there. I find that people that journal, at least in the beginning, I and mean, we don't have to go the rest of your life journaling, but if you really start writing things down and you start to notice things like people eat steak all the time, right? They'll go out for a big steak dinner. Everybody feels like crap after they eat that steak dinner. Right. They're holding their belly. They feel sick. If you're journaling, I feel sick. I feel too full. I feel bad after I ate that steak. And you, you're writing that down. You start to become much more cognizant, much more conscious about it. And you become much more conscious about the food choices that you make because you think, God, if I eat that ice cream, I got to put that in my journal. I don't think I want to do that. Yeah. The other thing I tell patients is that always plan ahead. So in their journals, I like them the night before to pencil in what they're going to eat the next day. Like the worst thing you do is make game time decisions about food when you're trying to change the way you eat. Because, you know, if you wait till lunch and you're hungry as hell at lunch and you're going to make a game time decision about what you're hungry for and someone brings a pizza, you're going to eat that pizza. Right. But if the night before you wrote down, I'm, I'm going to eat a salad tomorrow, I'm going to go to the salad bar. Someone brings a pizza, you're going to already have a plan. You're going to go and get that salad bar. And, and so that, I think, is really, really uh, an important step in changing habits. Yeah, absolutely. The next thing is, like, what to eat. Now, I always tell people I want them eating. Like, I don't want anybody counting anything. I don't count calories or certainly don't count protein, obviously. <laughs> um, but if we were going to count anything, it would be fiber. Like, I want every meal to have fiber in it. It's not a healthy meal if it doesn't have fiber in it. And so fiber is going to be in the kind of foods that I want you to eat, which is fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, and seeds. I typically look at breakfast as a grain and fruit type meal. So it's oatmeal and berries or like Ezekiel bread toasted with uh, strawberries and some almond butter um, or muesli type cereal with almond milk and berries. Then lunch, I really look for the salads, like dark green leaves. I always add beans to those salads. So chickpeas, black beans, red beans, doesn't matter. You could do vegetable soups at this time. Potatoes are really satiating. Yams are fantastic for you. Um, snacks during the day, I like apples and almonds. Um, yeah. Hummus and vegetables. And then dinner would be like a, a – there's so many different great menus. Now, one thing I really like is for people to learn to cook. Yeah. And I love these new things out like uh, Healthy Fresh and Blue Apron and all these great pr different things that will deliver you all the groceries you need to cook up a dinner. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's a great way to start kind of getting used to following a recipe and, and learning how to make foods. And then there's great cookbooks out there. I love Rich Roll's um, Plant Power Way. Yes, I love that book. Great book. I love Forks Over Knives mm -hmm. recipes, books. And, you know, my wife and I will play with different salads and different salad dressings and things we get from these different books and bean-type dishes and tofu dishes. And so our dinner is where we really get a lot of variety. I love all of those references. And I love cooking too. But what if someone says, I don't have time to cook? Would you recommend the delivery service? What is the best tip for someone that is just not having time? Well, I mean, I think you can make healthy choices on the run. I mean, oatmeal is everywhere. You know, you could do overnight oats, so you just pick them up in the morning and take off with them. Salad bars are everywhere nowadays. 
If I go to a Mexican restaurant and I ask them for veggie fajitas, which are just, you know, vegetables, I tell them not to put a lot of butter and oil on it. If I go to an a, a Italian restaurant, I get pasta primavera with red sauce and no oil. And so, I mean, it's easy to eat out. Uh, steakhouses have great veggie plates. I mean, it's, it's, it really isn't that hard. There's a lot of, you know, each city has their own food delivery services. I know LA has like tons of them. Yeah, we're, we're good over here. It's for our other- no problem. <laughs> Our other listeners that we want to help out because in LA, it is so easy to be healthy. And you know, there's no excuse here if you're not healthy. I understand being in a small town, it's harder, but here you got no excuse. <laughs> no excuse. And then, you know, there's like a, even I think Beyonce started a food. Yes, food delivery, vegan food delivery. We have to test it and we'll do a podcast on it. <laughs> I have no idea if it's good or not. But I mean, you know, there's lots of things to look at. But I would tell people, I mean, a lot of there's a lot of quick foods that don't take much preparation. It takes nothing to put together a salad, carry apples and almonds and walnuts and things like that with you. Um, learn how to mix up bean dishes. I mean, it takes five minutes. Like I actually teach cooking classes from time to time at our office. And we will awesome. show like, you know, meals that you could prepare within five minutes. So I think you have to demystify cooking a bit and understanding that food preparation is not time intensive. And that if you really want to be healthy and you really want to eat healthy food, you do have to prepare some meals. Absolutely. And what's next for you, Garth? What are you doing? What's coming up? Are you on a book tour? How can everyone find you? Yeah, I'm going to be um, doing a book signing in Washington on November 18th at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Awesome. Okay. Can everyone find you online? Where is your events or your book tour? How can everyone find you? I will usually um, post stuff on Facebook. I, I do most of my kind of communications on Facebook under Dr. Garth. Dr. Garth, and that's your page? Page, yeah. They don't have to add you as a friend. They can just like Dr. Garth's just page? Like okay, awesome. Okay, everyone go online and like Dr. Garth. I'm doing it right now. Are you on Twitter? Are you on any other platforms? On Twitter too, Dr. Garth Davis, and on Instagram, Dr. Garth Davis, but that's mainly pictures of my dogs. <laughs> um, I want to see a picture of your Great Dane. That's our favorite. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a Great Dane, and now we just have a um, French bulldog puppy. Oh, so, uh, yeah, that's all that you'll see on Instagram. But um, on Twitter and on Facebook, I post kind of like uh, my evaluation of the WHO results, uh, go through the different research papers as they come out and give people kind of tips on being healthy. I want to reiterate, Garth, that I think what you're doing is so valuable. And I'm so glad we got a chance to talk with you because, again, MDs in general say, ah, what you eat doesn't matter. And no, it does. And you have so much information. You have all the specifics and you're breaking down all of the studies for us in digestible bites, if I can use that <laughs> terminology. So thank you again for all of your information. Thank you for your book. It's fantastic. And thanks for being here. No problem. Pleasure doing it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And my dogs are at Charlotte and Jackson. So we will be following your dogs <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram. So I'm really excited about that. But um, tell everyone where they can buy your book. Well, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, in most bookstores, I imagine. Should be easy to get. Yeah. And what's your website? Well, we have a website for the book called proteinaholic.com. And if someone is in Texas and they want to come see you? Um, they go to the davisclinic.com if they're interested in weight loss surgery or medical weight loss. Um, you can make an appointment through the davisclinic.com. Thank you so much. We are so excited about this interview and I know everyone's going to love it and we're definitely going to have you back. No problem. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for listening. 
What a great interview. Dr. Garth is just so informative. I'm so glad we had him on today. I know. It's so much information and it's so great to have a doctor talking about nutrition. Yeah. He's backing up everything that we've been saying on the podcast. So if you don't believe us, take it from Dr. Garth. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to actually start using their $39.99 a month gym membership. If you experience any of these symptoms, Snapchat your trainer immediately. 